beginning at verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom, whose hand have I taken bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you. And his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Then Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness, who's, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went to Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made the made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Caesarea, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served the Baals and Asherah. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. The Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Japheth and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both of you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet you do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. 
Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Lord, allow us now to humble ourselves before your word, before your Holy Spirit working through that word to speak to our hearts. And Lord, allow your messenger this morning simply to be your mouthpiece, that your word would go forward in power. And Lord, it would have an effect that you desire to have this morning. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So much of history is moved and shaped by special moments when one person stands before a people or a nation to speak. And here are some examples of what I'm talking about. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. Of course, that was part of the Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. Another example would be this. I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day On the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. And of course, that was Martin Luther King Jr. And then another one. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. My fellow citizens of the world, ask not what America will do for you, but what together we can do for the freedom of men. And of course, that's John F. Kennedy. Another one that for me resounds is this. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France, and we shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air, and we shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And, of course, that was Sir Winston Churchill. Now, I read all of those simply to emphasize that these men stood up in a context of conflict, a context of crisis, and spoke to the nation or to a certain group of people, and it affected change. It affected motivation toward a particular goal. And they were speeches that grabbed the the attention of the nations that unified peoples that shifted the focus of history in tremendous ways. But now, as we turn our attention to 1 Samuel and chapter 12, we have another very significant speech. But this time, not by someone who is in a political position, but someone who is in a position representing God. And what they have to say today to the people of God 
in that particular context is a very important message, a very powerful message, and that messenger is Samuel. Samuel was raised up by God, as we have read in 1 Samuel, to be the leader of Israel, preparing the way for the ultimate leader that God had in store, and that would be David. But at this present moment, Samuel is giving his speech, and Saul has been identified as the king. He's been chosen by the people. He's been chosen by God. And so here we find Samuel giving what I've called his final speech to Israel. And it's a speech full of great wisdom and counsel, confrontation and comfort, challenge and consequence. I want to draw your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and verses, uh, verse 24 in particular, uh, and 25. Now when we hear the expression, I've been swept away, we usually think of sentences in the following ways. I've been swept away by God's love. You can just imagine a contemporary song using that kind of language, right? I've been swept away by God's kindness. I've been swept away by God's grace. But that's not what we find here. We don't expect to read what we read here because the idea that comes out of this verse is I've been swept away by God's wrath. That's not a place you want to be. But that is the possibility facing Israel in this text. If they don't listen to Samuel's pleading, they run the risk of being swept away in judgment. This is the caution we find now in these verses. For consider what great things he has done for you, Samuel says, Verse 24, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so this verse captures for us the tone and the focus of this chapter. It's a call for Israel to consider, to listen, to pay attention to what Samuel is saying. And it's also a transitional speech. I say transitional because this is a time of transition. It isn't that Samuel is dying or that he's leaving. In fact, we will continue to see Samuel functioning as God's prophet, even into David's presence and the stories related to David. But what's transitioning is the leadership role in Israel. See, Samuel was that leader, and he has been that leader up until this point. But now that God has appointed Saul king and the people have affirmed that appointment, it's time for Samuel to end his role as Israel's judge and deliverer and transfer that responsibility now over to the king. So in this time of transition, Samuel speaks one last time as the appointed leader of Israel, pleading with them to consider what great things God has done for Israel and to build their future under their new leader and king, Saul, in such a way that will glorify God. And if they decide to ignore his words, they run the risk of being swept away. And so in short, what we have here is Samuel basically pleading with them one final time to either consider the Lord or to be swept away. And we can look at this chapter in three sections, God's faithfulness, their wickedness, and God's kindness. And that will be the way in which we're going to approach this this morning. So Samuel now is pleading 
for the people of Israel to consider his words or if they do not, that they will be swept away. And he is going to emphasize and he's going to paint a picture for them of God's ongoing, consistent faithfulness in spite of their wickedness. So notice, first of all, consider God's great faithfulness to Israel. And he begins by telling the story of himself. He begins by presenting himself as that leader. And he is challenging the people concerning his own personal integrity as a leader. Remember what he says. I have not taken any of your livestock. I have not defrauded anyone. I have not oppressed any individuals. I have not been guilty of taking bribes. Is that not true? He asks. He served them as God's chosen leader. He's been faithful to both God and to the people of Israel. And they give testimony, they give witness that he is telling the truth. And the Lord is also witness of the same truth. And the people support that recognition. And the the point here is this, that Samuel is, is seeking to make sure that they're on the same ground, saying, listen, I have been a a man of integrity in how I've been handling this role of a leader of Israel representing God to you. Look at verse one. And Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I've obeyed your voice in all you have said to me and have made a king over you. It isn't that Samuel just did what the people wanted, but that under God's direction, he had given them what they wanted. That's important here. Because Samuel went to God and God said, no, go ahead and give them the king. Okay, I'm gonna do what you want me to do. But he's been faithful. So they're all agreed. And this is just a a side note here. This is really important to recognize, and that's this. The the importance of faithful leadership. Leadership that is exercised with concern for God, his church, and personal integrity. That kind of leadership, friends, is always a platform from which to speak hard things to people who are wandering away in sin from God. If Samuel were a scoundrel, if Samuel were the kind of person that was more concerned about his own security and his own benefit and the things that he could get out of people, he is not gonna be a man of integrity that has a voice to listen to. And as we raise up leaders in the church, we wanna raise up leaders who are, who are demonstrating integrity in their lives. That does not mean imperfection. It means that they're living Christ-like lives so that when they sin, they are coming quickly to God and they're restoring their relationship. They're quick to get things right. They're demonstrating qualities of leadership by virtue of their desire for integrity. And when you have someone who has integrity, you're willing to listen to them, even in the hard times, even when they're talking to you about your sinfulness. And that's, that's what's going on here. So the person who has endured for God's sake is the kind of person who is going to uh, gain an audience when they speak, and they speak for God in particular. And how important it is then as a church, um, and I say our church as well as the church in general, have leaders who are people of integrity. That's the faithfulness of Samuel. But notice now the faithfulness of God. As we look at this section where God's righteous deeds are on display, we see a familiar pattern on display. There's a crisis of oppression. There's a cry for help. There's God's provision of a leader. This cycle just repeats itself and repeats itself through Israel's history. 
And he uses really three examples to, to paint this picture of God's faithfulness. He goes to Egypt, first of all. And he talks about how Egypt was oppressing Israel. And the fathers of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who delivered them out of their bondage. And ultimately brought them to the promised land of Canaan. And what, what, what Samuel is saying is, listen, here's just an example to show you that God is faithful. Look how he has been faithful to hear you in your crisis and send you a deliverer. And then he goes on and talks about Israel's experience in Canaan, in the promised land. And this is kind of a, a general assessment where he kind of lumps everyone together in the history of Israel, in particular the time of the judges. But under the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Moabites who oppressed Israel during that time, the people oppressed, uh, confessed their sin of forsaking God and worshiping idols and cried out to God to deliver them out, of, out from under the hand of their oppressors. So like the faithful God that he is, he sends people to deliver them. Right, uh, Jerubal, Barak, Jephthah, and then of course he even identifies himself as one of those judges. And again, he's saying to them, listen, God has been faithful to you. Even when you have wandered from him, God's faithfulness has remained. He is a faithful God. But then he goes on and talks about Nahash. And if you remember, Nahash is the chapter before we find him introduced. But we find out that he was kind of on the scenes even back when Israel was asking for a king. He says, now when Nahash comes on the scene, something changes in the people. When there's this oppression, where there's this devastation happening from him and his armies across the Jordan, Israel is no longer crying out to God for help. Instead, they reject God as their deliverer king and they want to do things a different way. They want to do it their way and so they cry out to have a king over them like the other nations. They want to have a human king that can lead them into battle. Now we may not quite understand what's going on here but the the sin of what's taking place here is that they are rejecting God as their king and they're wanting a human a man to lead them into battle and so now Samuel says see how God has been faithful to Israel but Israel has not been faithful to God verse 13 and now behold the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. It's interesting when you just see the language in who chose Saul to be king. It, it's God choosing Saul, right? That the whole passage where he is presented as king is this judgment passage where the, the tribes are all divided into families and the famines and finally it lands on Saul. It was God sovereignly choosing Saul to be their king. But at the same time, it was the people choosing Saul to be king because they were looking for a particular kind of king, a handsome king, a tall king, one that could lead them into battle. And God was saying, okay, I'll give you your king, but you're not going to be independent of me. That king is still going to be under my sovereign authority. And so here the emphasis is on, you know what? You asked for this king, 
but the Lord has set a king over you. Still, God in his kindness accommodated their demand and gave them a king. But now, Israel, you have some choices to make. What will you do from this point going forward? So this, this whole speech now it starts general with his integrity and moves to God's faithfulness, but is coming now to a, a focal point where he's saying, this is the rub. Let's continue on here with what I'm calling, now what will you do moving ahead? Here are the choices. Either follow the Lord or don't follow the Lord. Look at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. So there's four things. They're saying, make sure you're doing this or not doing this, right? Make sure you're fearing the Lord, serving him, and obeying his voice, then there's the negative, and not rebelling against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. And I would just say that this expression to follow the Lord your God encompasses those four statements. Talking about the king following the Lord, what does that mean? It means that he's the kind of person that fears the Lord and serves him and obeys him and is not willing to rebel against the Lord. So he's saying, your choice, choice number one, follow the Lord. Choice number two here is this, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now friends, don't just read that too fast. Then what? The hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now if you've been following along in 1 Samuel, this should ring some bells and some flags should be popping up in your mind because that expression has been used. In particular, it has been used in the context of the Philistines. If you remember, the Philistines, when they encountered Israel in battle, the Israelites went into battle taking the ark like it was a rabbit's foot, right? And the Philistines took that ark not only won the battle, devastated the Israelites, but they took that ark in celebration as a trophy and they set it up in their temple to Dagon. And so here's Dagon and here's the ark in that, in that temple and they came the next day and Dagon had fallen down and then they put him back up and the next day he fell down and his head had broken off, his arms had broken off. Both times he was bowing before the ark of the covenant of God. What an awesome demonstration of God's power. But... The presence of that ark among the Philistines caused the people to break out in tumors. And so the people shuffled the ark from city to city and said, we don't want this, we don't want this, look at what's happening, we don't want this. And that is all described as the hand of God on the Philistines. It's a hand of judgment. And so Samuel's saying, listen, if you will not follow the Lord but choose to rebel, you are asking for the hand of God to be on you, the hand of judgment. I mean, this is a serious choice. This was not too far removed from their history to remember God in his activity. If you also remember in that story when the ark came back, even some of the people of Israel did not respect God and how they handled the ark and he killed 70 dead. The hand of God in judgment on the people. So this, friends, is the challenge. Either live faithfully under the word of the Lord or suffer justly under the hand of the Lord. 
right? Either live faithfully under the word of the Lord or suffer justly under the hand of the Lord. Those are the choices before them. And friends, this is where we, we get to in a crisis. We begin to act and to believe the lie that says, I can't see how God can provide in this situation. There is no way he can intervene. And we call that between a rock and a hard place, right? You are in such a difficult spot, you've gotten to the place where you can't even see the possibility of God's deliverance in your life. Oh yeah, there's stories in the Bible where God delivers, but that that was because that was Israel, his special, unique people. Well, who are you? But we get to the place where we stop believing that God can deliver, that God can provide, that God will take care of us And we say to ourselves, this problem is just too big, it's just too complex. And we begin to believe Christian cliches that are lies, such as God helps those who help themselves. Which is a quick transition from I'm gonna trust in a sovereign God to I have to handle this myself. And as a result, we abandon God's way of thinking and we say I must take things into my own hands. Now friends, when that happens, we've drifted from the confidence of belief to the emptiness of unbelief. And when we are lost in the sea of unbelief, we will turn to whatever seems best to us at the time, and we will be unwilling to listen to godly counsel. In fact, we will typically typically kind of lash out at godly counsel because we are convinced that God's ways are just not working. I'm reminded of something that I was teaching in our Cornerstone class this week. It was a quote by Lou Priolo, and he's a Christian counselor. This is what he says, Christian counselors regularly hear from discouraged counselees, I tried it God's way and it didn't work. And as a biblical counselor, however, I know that if a Christian counselor, sorry, a Christian makes such a claim, either one of two things is wrong. Either the counselee did not really do it God's way, number two, or he did not do it God's way long enough. Someone says, well, I'm suffering with anxiety. Well, guess what? You have a sovereign God who's totally in control. Are you gonna believe him? Well, yeah, I'm gonna believe him, but I believe him for a day, and then the next day I don't believe him. And so the point is, do you apply God's truth consistently and, and, and with diligence? And we have to struggle to get to that place where we're consistent in doing that. But friends, it's so easy for us to lose our grip on believing that we lose our faith in him and we go after other things that are substitutes and they are, they are friends, they're, they're empty. They're void of any sustenance at all. So consider God's great faithfulness. You know, this, of all the, all the attributes of God, if I were here just to say, you know, hey, yell out some attributes of God, one of the first five is gonna be his faithfulness. We love God's faithfulness. Why? Because we, we nestle into it. We know that no matter what circumstance that we're in, that God is always faithful. That is a promise that we hold to. The problem, though, is there are many things that derail us from that reality. And we might still think that we're holding on to God's faithfulness when we're actually holding on to our own 
strength and our own thinking, or I might wanna say the world's way of doing things. So now, having presented to them the choices, he is now saying, consider your great wickedness. Now some people are not moved by such a passionate plea. They're not so much moved by words. Samuel has told the Israelites to stand still. Have you ever heard that expression before? Psalm 46. Stand still and know that I am God. This is, he's saying, stand still. I want you to pay attention. I want you to listen and I want you to see because I want you to know. The problem is Israel is standing firm in their rebellion and calling it right. So now Samuel needs to get their attention and really God is getting their attention through Samuel. And so it's time to back up his words with a divine display. So Samuel calls upon the people to stand still once again. Verse 16, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. He's shown them what God has done. He's going to show them now what God will do. And then he says, is it not wheat harvest today? In other words, this is harvest season. So this was between May and June during that time. And the impact of thunder and rain that will come is that this is the dry season and thunder and rain just don't come during that time. It would be like August in Oakland and it's snowing. This was not the time for rain. This was not the time for thunder. So what God was about to do was a divine display of his sovereign power for the specific purpose of showing them that they need to pay attention to what he's saying about their sin. Now, notice if you would please, as we continue, I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. You shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. Now pause there. Can scripture be any clearer about the fact that their desire for a king was evil and wicked in the sight of God? It's pretty plain, isn't it? And to back it up, I'm gonna show you this mighty demonstration of God's power. And the point of this was, was to convince them that they're asking for a king was actually great wickedness and rebellion against the Lord. See, they were in a covenant with God, their king. And to request a king like the nations was to break that covenant and to break covenant with God was a serious, serious matter. Verse 18, so Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly what? Feared the Lord. This sign, so to speak, got Israel's attention. They got the point loud and clear or loud and wet, if you like. They feared the Lord and Samuel, it says. So God is saying to Israel, when you sin against me and I withhold my anger and make accommodations for your sin, 
that doesn't mean that your sin is somehow less offensive to me. My graciousness and kindness to you do not diminish the wickedness of your sin. Just because God is gracious to us doesn't mean that our sin is any less sinful or any less offensive. You've probably seen people, heard people, um, or maybe you've done it yourself. You're kind of, you know, these people are, are they're, they're doing something sinful, and then they pause for a minute and they think, oh yeah, God's watching, and they kind of like step out and go with their hand like an aerial to heaven and say, well, he didn't strike me dead, I guess I'm okay, you know, and they go back to their sin. The fact that God didn't strike them dead is God's patience, his long-suffering. It doesn't mean that God now has turned a blind eye towards your sin. He still sees that sin as great wickedness and evil in his sight, and it will still demand a punishment. Now, friends, this is, this is part of, of what it means to, to begin to understand the holiness of God, the, 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 the magnificence of God, the seriousness of God. Now, add to that, our sin is still an offense to God that needs to be dealt with his way. And how is it dealt with his way? Through confession and through repentance. Confession is admitting to God and agreeing with God that what you have done is actually sin and that your sin is truly offensive to him. You're agreeing, yes, that is wickedness, that is evil, that is a sin against you. I confess that that is true. Repentance is turning away from that sin in your heart and life and pursuing Christ's new way, walking in holiness again. Now, we, we may not get such direct visual effects today, right? It's not like I'm going to say to you, okay, now everyone pause now, put your Bibles down, let's all go outside and let's look up into the sky and it's going to snow, right? That's not likely to happen, okay? I don't have that gift, okay? And I don't need to have that gift because God, he, he wakes us up, he gets our attention through a variety of uh, forms. For example, he uses his word, how many times have you read God's word or been sitting under God's word and through the preaching or the teaching of God's word, he gets your attention about some sin in your life. He convicts you. He wakes you up. Ah, I didn't realize that that was sin. I didn't realize that that was so offensive to God. Oh, it's just a little sin, but, but now I realize it's not just a little sin. It's a really significant sin that I need to come and confess and repent and through that be restored. He also uses providence, what we might call coincidence. And we, we see the loving hand of God as we reflect on the circumstances in our lives. Have you ever had one of those moments where you're almost in an accident, except for some heavenly intervention? You don't see the angels, you don't see any of that happening, but you're convinced that the only way I got through this was because God was looking out, right? We live up by Cal State and there's a big hill called Carlos B that comes down. And um, you go across mission to usually to get to school where I take the kids to school and stuff. And, and a few years back I was driving my Astro van and coming down the hill and my brakes didn't work. So I'm coming down this hill and I'm coming pretty fast. And this is a busy intersection. 
And I'm just like, okay, it's not working, it's not working. I just need to kind of look around and see what I can do and however I can weave through here. And you know, it just happened, the light turned red and I'm going through a red light. And I go through the thing and and make it. And then, fortunately, if you've been down that road, it continues on and there's like an overpass and it goes down, then it goes up. I finally got to the car to slow down on the other side and pull over to the side of the road. And, you know, and then I called the, you know. It wasn't my skill. It was the hand of God. But it's things like that that cause you to think and cause you to contemplate. Sometimes it's meeting up with people you know in an obscure place where you least expect it. Has that ever happened to you before? You go on vacation somewhere and you think, ah, oh, we're out of, we're, we're on vacation, we're not gonna see anyone we know, and then you see two people, it's like, oh, how come you're here? We're happening to be here at the same time. Well, we came, you know, two days earlier and whatever, you know. And you say to yourself, mm-hmm, uh-huh. And just, just add some sin in there, you know. Maybe you're on that vacation and you're like, you know, we're away from people, we're gonna do some things, and uh-oh. <laughs> it's not good. It'll wake you up. It'll cause you to think. See, God uses providence like that to get our attention, right? We might just call, oh, it's just coincidental. Nothing is ever coincidental with God. My brother, um, in 1988, was flying from the United States from Michigan over to, I believe it was England, and uh, he was working, he worked in robotics at that point in time, and he was doing some, some work there at one of, the, one of the GM plants, and um, then he flew home, and two days later, um, Pan Am Flight 103 was blown up by terrorists over Lockerbie, Scotland, at least that's where it, where it landed. And he was shaken to the core. And the reason being is that two days earlier, he had been on Flight 103, Pan Am, flying to the United States. Okay, Th these are things that just get your attention. And God does that, not necessarily through might want to say dynamic means in the heavens, but he does that through providence many times. Another way he does it is through other people's troubles. When you hear about some, some kind of tragedy in the lives of other people, maybe the death of a child or the news of a, of a life-changing disease or some other kind of tragedy, there's a tendency to just to want to go home and grab your kids and hug them. You just you begin to think, and you're just thankful, God, for the, 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 the kindness and, and the graciousness that, that he, is, he has given you. And again, these are just all ways that God alerts us once again to do some soul searching. Uh, you, might, you might add in there just the, the reminder of the Lord's table when we go before the Lord in communion. It's an opportunity for us not just to go through a ceremony but to really do some soul searching. And these, these are times when God says, listen, I want you to wake up. I want you to think about your walk with me. I want you to be serious about it. Because if you walk through that in a flippant way, there will be consequences. I mean, that's, that's, that's what scripture says, right? So we gotta be careful what we're doing. So that just causes us to say, wait a second, I need to listen. Now, not only <clears throat> were they um, getting their attention, but they were receiving their confession. Let's say Samuel's receiving their confession. So the people got the point, we pick it up at verse 19, and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. I would say that's a confession. And it's a cry of repentance because of 
their confession. We know we've done this, now pray for us. So they're saying we've committed, first of all, many sins, but friends, this is not the, the, the wimpy, we are all sinners kind of confession, which is so popular today, right? Well, you know, you know we're all sinners. Yeah, we're, we're all sinners. I know that, but what's going on here is, is Samuel's not identifying Israel, saying, well, listen, you've got all these sins that need to be confessed and repented of. He's, no, 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 he's saying there is a particular sin that you need to understand has offended God, and that needs to be confessed and repented of. And so when we, when we are tempted to, to give this kind of wimpy, we're all sinners kind of confession, it's really no confession at all. It is a smokescreen that seeks to give the appearance of humility and contrition, but what it really does is to seek to sidestep the sinfulness of one's own sin. It speaks to the general condition of mankind, yes. We're all tainted with sin, and so sin, there's plenty of sin in us, but what God is looking for in us is not general wimpy confession that seeks to eke out from under his confrontation, but robust, specific confession that recognizes the sin for what it really is. So, on a practical level, when you are interacting with each other and you sin against each other, and you're, you know, you're coming together, you said, you know, well, sorry for what I did. What I did, general. See, we, we, we don't want to get specific. I, I'm sorry that I spoke to you in unkind ways. I used language that was hurtful, that was harmful, I sinned against you because I didn't respect you. I sinned against you because I was full of pride and I'm asking you to forgive me. See, God wants us to be specific like that. Now the problem is we don't like to be in context of confrontation so we will actually accept wimpy confession and wimpy kind of say restoration. I'm sorry for what I did. Oh, it was nothing. No, it was something. It was sin, and it was an offense, and it offended God, and it offended you. It was something. If it was nothing, then you shouldn't be saying anything about it. But it is something because it is sinful. Now you say, man, you're just pounding us with sin, sin, sin. I understand that, but on the back of confession and repentance, there is always forgiveness. And the goal is to get to the place of forgiveness and restoration. Well, you're not going to get to forgiveness and restoration unless you are doing due diligence to confess and to repent in a way that is crisp and clear rather than this general, fuzzy, sidestepping kind of confession. So Israel's, in Israel's case, they're saying, we have committed this evil sin, specifically asking for a king. It is that specific sin that Samuel is addressing that has offended God. Now what what God smells when he looks at Israel is rebellion and wickedness. Dale Davis says this, how can the living God get you to fear your subtle idolatry? Be alarmed by it, be repulsed by it, or even become aware of it unless he shows you how it smells to him. A few days ago, I woke up in the morning and there was a smell in the house. 
Now, hopefully that's not kind of like, you know, symptomatic of our home, right? Um, but there was a smell, and I was like, what in the world is this smell? And then we remembered we had chicken the night before, and we put it in the kitchen garbage, and we didn't take it out, right? And so we had the smell that was coming from the garbage. Now, the smell was there to warn me there's a problem, to get my attention to say, deal with this. Oftentimes, when I leave my house in the morning or late at night, I will walk out, and there is an odor. Pepe Le Pew has been around. And if Pepe Le Pew has been around, I am paying attention. You understand what I'm saying? I do not want to bathe in milk. That's expensive. So I'm looking around. That smell warns me that a skunk has been around and might be in my vicinity, and I want to be careful that I do not run into it because that would not be good. The smell is a warning to get my attention to deal with things properly. Okay? Now, friends, the stench of our sin should point us to the sinfulness of that sin. And I am convinced of this, in particular, even in American Christianity, that we do not recognize the sinfulness of our sin. We do not like to even think about our sin as being actually sinful. It's just a thing that we do. Okay, I'll, I'll convince I'll fine, I'll pray. We don't realize how offensive it is to God. Now, when we do, it drives us to confession. But listen, if we are afraid of confession, it's because we have a tainted view of God. God is going to carry out his judgment, but God also is a God who relents on that judgment when there is a cry of confession and repentance. And then he breaks forth into forgiveness. And that forgiveness is more beautiful than you can ever imagine, that God would accept you having sinned. And so often we fear being honest with God about our sinfulness. When that is exactly the means by which we can get to being restored to him. Now it's only when God's people see their sin from God's perspective that there is hope that they will turn from it. Again, that's what confession is to see your sin as God sees it, to see your rebellion and wickedness before him, to see your sin as deserving judgment. There is something to be said about greatly fearing the Lord as a motivation to repent. Some might say fear is not the way of scripture or of Christ. In our kind of more psychologized world, We do not want to discourage anyone, so fear is one of those things we do not want to put on people. Now, if I say to you, if you do not embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will die in your sin and you will be cast into the lake of fire. You'll be cast into hell. Is that what scripture says? Well, you will suffer fear. Or you can allow that fear to be a means of heart search and consideration so that you can seek restoration with God. Now, if you say fear is not the way of scripture, let me give you a few examples that would kind of dispel that. How about Achan's sin? We looked at that last week where he had had taken some items that were devoted to destruction and God 
was going to now judge him because of that. And so he ends up not only judging Achan, but his whole household. And he does that, and the whole of Israel feared that situation. They, they got an idea that God is serious. He wants to be listened to. He wants to be obeyed. Korah's rebellion, number 16, is another one. There was a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, the leaders of Israel who were doing what God wanted them to do, but there were some people that didn't like it, and so they rebelled. And again, what happens is that God separated them from the rest of Israel and ultimately swallowed them up. And like the earth opened up, they went in there, and the people standing there, the scripture says, looking up, and then they closed on them. Why? Because of their sin. And of course the people feared God because, because of that. Probably the New Testament example, the best one would be Ananias and Sapphira, which is really an, a really interesting story because it's not, that, it's not that anyone could see what they were doing, but, but you could understand what they were doing because the spirit of God was at work. They withheld what they actually had gained in profit and presented it as everything that they had gained. So they were, they were sinning by misrepresentation and deception, and God would have none of it. And so both of them, two different times the same day, are struck dead among the people, and there was great fear. And friends, here in 1 Samuel 12, it is that fear in verse 18 that led to the repentance in verse 19. Fear is the way to faithfulness in this text. Now I'm not saying that our new evangelism strategy is to put fear in everyone, right? I, I, I'm, I'm a little leery of hearing someone, well, why, you know, how did you become a Christian? Well, I heard about hell and I didn't want it, so I decided I would pray a prayer. That may not be true conversion. It may be a backdrop to understanding what true conversion is all about, but we gotta be careful there, okay? But fear is something that God uses to motivate us, to push us, to consider his words and to pay attention to what he says. Now let me remind you of a very familiar song that you and I have sung and would sing if it was put up on the screen. It's just one little, one little line. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. The song is amazing grace. So here we've seen so far, you know, God's faithfulness, our wickedness, but now we need to consider God's great kindness. You know, I, just, I, I could not and would not end the story there because the story doesn't end there. It continues on and we need to see the, the magnitude of God's wonderful kindness even in the context of our wicked sinfulness. Israel had sinned against God and now through their confession there was repentance and when there is repentance there is always forgiveness. But here forgiveness, remember, may wipe away the sin, but it doesn't always wipe away the consequence of that sin. They had sinned, and now they had to adjust to and live with those consequences. But it's important for us to note that there is the possibility and reality of living a godly life after great sin. See, Israel still had an opportunity here to live their lives for the glory of God. Even though they had sinned this great wicked sin. 
So when there is confession and repentance, the consequences may remain, but God in his kindness gives grace and strength to his children to face those consequences and to face those changes now before them. Now friends, aren't you thankful for that? All of us in here sin. And if you're walking with God and you're sensitive to that, there are times when you're thinking to yourself, this sin has really offended you, God. And, and, but you gotta fight your way to believing that God still forgives. And when you fight through that, you fight also then to, to, to grab a hold of grace that says, you know what, in spite of your sin, now having been restored to me, there is still life, and there's still life in Christ, and there's still purpose, God-ordained, purposeful purpose that, that I've called you to. You're not just someone that is set on the side. God doesn't take Israel and say, Psh, you're done. They've come, they've humbled themselves, they've repented, and he's saying, I still have work to do with you. So he begins here by saying, consider God's great kindness. First of all, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because you are forgiven. Verse 20, and Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Now, what's he saying there? Don't be afraid. Yeah, you have been sinful. Yes, you have been wicked and evil in asking for a king. But there is forgiveness. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Yes, you're completely guilty. But there is still hope because you are forgiven. There's still life, a life worth living. There's still the ability of every person in Israel following the Lord. And it's not because of anything that you have done, but it's only because of the kindness of God. And then he says this, not only don't be afraid, but also follow the Lord. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. And before that he says, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And so this world is full of all sorts of different distractions that seek to squeeze us into its mold. The pursuit of pleasure and amusement, the hunger for the abundance of possessions, the exercise of power that may have some kind of temporary satisfaction, but they will end in emptiness. In fact, the word empty is the same word that is used to describe the emptiness just prior to God's work of creation. There's nothing there. Now, I wanna step back a little bit. This is, this is the humor part in this story, somewhat. God chose Saul out of the people's rebellion to be king. The people chose Saul to be their king. And now Saul is a part of this group that's listened to the speech. What do you think Saul is thinking to himself? I guess I am empty. I mean, just, just think about all that Samuel is saying. You have been wicked in choosing yourself a king. And Saul's like, I'm sorry, I'll just walk over here and hide or something like that. I mean, you just see, this is what's going on. The people know, the people see, and Saul is listening and considering. And that's the point when we turn away from following God, we turn to things that will not truly satisfy. 
They may appear to be exactly what we need, but when pursued, they fall desperately short. You know what that's like, right? You look in the menu and you order that meal and it comes to you and you're like, oh, this is gonna be great. Can I order something else, please? It looked good, but it didn't satisfy. And so easily we're drawn away from holding on to God's faithfulness, to something that looks good, but behind its veneer and its glitz is emptiness. And so now Samuel gets to the heart of the matter. Why we should should not be afraid? Why we should follow a Lord? Not empty pursuits. And here's what he says, verse 22. And this is is the, the focal point of all of this speech, all of this endeavor, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Now just think about that. God doesn't abandon those who are his. Even when they sin, even when they shake their fists at him, even then when they rebel against him and don't want anything to do with him, he doesn't forsake his own. For his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. God's own reputation is the basis of his kindness, of his sovereign grace. In the context of your great sin, God pursues his children and calls them to repent. He does not abandon them, but because of his own reputation, he will continue to fashion and shape his children to be like his son, Jesus Christ. Now friends, that is so helpful for us because we get beaten up by I want to say Satan and his minions trying to convince us see you failed again you did it again so you you can't walk with God there's no way you're just you're just a waste of a Christian let me ask you this does God forsake those who might think of themselves as being a waste of a Christian The answer is no. If there is genuine salvation, genuine conversion, God is still pursuing that child. He is still desiring to bring repentance and restoration to that child of his. Even when they continue to say no, I don't want it. Now, it, it may come the hard way. And his discipline is not just for punishment's sake. God's discipline is there for the purpose of restoring. My friends, that's such a wonderful, beautiful reality that God has given us. We find this idea continuing into the New Testament with expressions like this, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, unless you keep on sinning. Is that what it says? No, he will do it. How about this one? We quote this oftentimes and don't necessarily get the connection of the bigger picture of God's sovereignty, but just listen, Romans 8, 28 and 29, and we know, I mean we know, he says, that for those who love God, so he's qualifying here, all things work together for what? 
good. For those who are called, and always his children, according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here is God who is at work fashioning and shaping those whom he's called, and he is promising that all things happen for their good. And hear this, even your struggle with sin is part of what God is using to grow you. So he doesn't want you to run away from him. He wants you to run to him. He wants you to see him as being that wonderful God that is faithful, that will not forsake you, but actually wants you to come and be restored to him. And then, having said that, Samuel says, listen to me. So he says, don't be afraid. He says, follow the Lord. And then he says, listen to me. Notice what he says, verse 23. Moreover, as for me, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. <laughs> what a leader. Here they are still struggling with their sin, having confessed it, but, but still uncertain about what is happening in the future. He's saying, listen, you did sin, and it really was sinful, but God forgives, and God restores. But now, listen to me, I will continue to pray for you. And my commitment to do that is not just a commitment to you, it's a commitment that I have to God to continue to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. So here we have this ministry of Samuel toward the people of God that will now be prayer and the ministry of the word. He says, I will pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and the right way. That is walking with God. This is all a kindness from God to a people who had sinned greatly. Verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. Fear the Lord, serve the Lord wholeheartedly, that means with everything that you have, and consider the Lord thoroughly. Now this, this last verse, is again, leaving the option before us. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's what you call leaving a message lingering. My friends, we have a choice. A choice before us this morning. To go ahead and look ahead during the quarter of time to the New Testament where God sent his son ultimately to go to a cross and on that cross he would hang on that cross and while on that cross he would bear the burden of the sin of all those people who put their faith and trust in him. He would, he would bear the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders and in dying, he would pay the necessary payment to satisfy God's wrath. And in doing that, paving a way for us now to be, who were once alienated, to be reconciled to him through the cross. 
And so when we think about how we approach this passage today, for us, we approach it through the cross. We say, listen, if, if I have offended God, I need to remind myself of what happened in my conversion. My sin has been paid for. If it's been paid for, I don't need to go back and think, oh, is there like a layaway plan? I have to continue paying on this? No, it's paid for. And so what I do is I remind myself of what took place in my conversion. I remind myself of what Jesus Christ did on that cross in satisfying God's wrath, and I apply that to my sin. And I say, God, isn't it amazing that even now, after the cross, that my sin is forgiven, and after my conversion, my sin is forgiven, but I practically sinned now, and so I want to acknowledge to you that the sin that has been paid for is actually sin, and I want to repent of that sin, and I want to continue now to walk my walk with you in a way that would glorify you. Friends, that is walking with Christ every day, but he wants us to see the sinfulness of our sin. Now listen, we, we, can, we can apply grace so much in the context of our Christian life that we begin to forget the fact that we sin. Yeah, it's been paid for, but it still is an offense to God. And so he still wants us to come and say, you're right, this is sinful. I need your forgiveness. And I need your help. I need your Holy Spirit to work through your word to, to fashion and to shape me to be like your son, Jesus Christ. I can't do it on my own. Now, friends, the, the, the beautiful a- application of this text is in particular to those who right now are wandering away from God, embracing their sin, And you might be here this morning and you know what it's like to come and be a part of a church and at the same time to be reveling in your sin. And God is saying, listen, will you listen to what I'm saying? Will you pay attention? Will you allow this this shock value in the text of God's word to wake you up and to see that God wants you restored? And that comes through confession and repentance. And through that confession and repentance, there is ongoing freedom and restoration with God. See, in our sinfulness, we don't always see how much we are in bondage to that sin. And yet God wakes us up. And friends, the other application is this. There are many in here who have friends and loved ones who are wandering in sin and our hearts are broken, and we wonder what we can do, and we wonder what God is doing, and we wonder about their salvation, we wonder about their sin, and what's all happening there, and we, 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 we come to a text like this, and we say, thank you, Lord, for the reminder of your faithfulness in the history of your people, of your power present today that is ongoing, and the assurance that you do not forsake your children. You are a God who is kind, who is gracious, and who is faithful, and will continue to be to all of your children. 
That is comforting news, friends. And I ask you to consider how you sit under this text. God is waiting and he's ready to hear your prayers of confession and repentance. He's ready and willing to hear your prayers of praise for your faithfulness, for his faithfulness in your life. And so as we draw to a close here, I'm just gonna be silent for a few minutes. I'm just gonna ask you to, to think about what God is saying in this passage about you, what he wants you to do, how he wants you to wrestle with the message that is here. You can consider God and his ways or you can ignore it and be swept away. afraid of you as your children Lord we have the freedom to come boldly to the throne of grace especially when we come with praise with confession with prayers of repentance oh Lord those are sweet smelling prayers to you and Lord may we be people who are eager to do that knowing that you will listen, that you will hear, that you will, even on the other side of being restored to you, Lord, you'll give us help and strength with the consequences of our sin that are looking us day after day. And Lord, as a church, we, we ask that you would give us a sensitivity to be specific and particular about the ways in which we offend you in our sinfulness and that in that particular understanding, Lord, that we would come to you with particular confession and particular repentance. That we would not drift back and just kind of embrace a, a, a generalized kind of warm, fuzzy confession and repentance that really doesn't mean anything. But Lord, may our, may our time with you in restoring our relationship with you be robust and real and passionate and genuine, but Lord, all of it resting on the fact that you are a sovereign God who sent your son to die on the cross for our sins. And that through that sacrifice, Lord, we have this wonderful privilege of being united with you. And then to live out that unity, Lord, in a way that would honor and glorify your name. Lord, I ask that you would help us to to be honest about the ways in which your Holy Spirit may be bringing things to our attention and that we would deal with those things in a Christ-like, God-honoring way. Lord, thank you for being a faithful God to us. In your name, amen.